morning. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the vineyard. Come on in. Find your spot. Everybody happy this morning? Yeah, um, did anybody get up early enough to see the beautiful fog that was out this morning? It's unbelievable. If you ever wondered what it was like to live in the Pacific Northwest, we've had Oregon all morning. It's beautiful. Uh, on the way in, I, I considered not coming. It's like, this is, maybe maybe we should just not go to church today. Anyhow, um, hey, my name is Adam Russell. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard, and we're going to start a new series at the Vineyard. I hope you brought your Bible. We're going to start a new series on the letter of Colossians. If you would, please open up to Colossians chapter 1 now. We're calling this series, you can go back, we're not quite ready for that. Seth is... He's on it this morning. Thank you. We're calling this series Cosmic Christ uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, The first reason we're calling this series Cosmic Christ is because it sounds cool and seems important. And then the second reason that we're calling this series Cosmic Christ is because the book of Colossians has one central theme that basically breaks open the rest of the book. And it is the fact That Jesus is the supreme, first, primary, most important, beginning and end, hold it all together person in the universe. That's who Jesus is. Um, There's not a way to put Jesus in second place. He's only first place. And the only way that you can find your life is by seeing that Jesus is first. And there's a scripture that we want to look at this morning. It's in the very beginning of the book. And this is Paul speaking about Jesus. This is the main thesis in the letter of Colossians. And everything sort of takes shape around these few verses. This is what Paul says about Jesus. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church who's the head of the body jesus is the head of the body there's not a pastor anywhere who's the head of the church nowhere it's jesus he's the beginning and he's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent if you've got your scripture open this morning you should just underline that in everything he might be preeminent For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. All of it. It gets even more mind-blowing in chapter 2. We'll get there in a few weeks where Paul says, And he dwells in you. Then in verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the main theme in the In the letter of Colossians, it is that Jesus is preeminent, that he is supreme, he's the first, he's the last, he's the beginning, he's the end, he holds it all together. And the only way that you or I can live life right, the only way that we can live the good life, the only way that you and I can live life in a way that makes any sense, the only way that you or I or anyone else in the world can live life and receive the fullness of joy that Jesus talks about, is by first seeing that Jesus is the first, the last, the most important, the preeminent, the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, who's holding it all together. 
it seems sort of obvious, right? Like we all know that Jesus is the first. We all know that Jesus is the most powerful. But it's actually easy to forget. I don't know if you realize that or not, but it's actually easy to forget. All this stuff that Paul says about Jesus here in Colossians, it's actually really easy to forget. The preeminence of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the efficiency of Jesus, the hold-it-all-togetherness of Jesus is easy to forget because he's so darn good at it. It's a lot like gravity. Right now, you and I are living in a solar system, and there are planets. And depending upon how you count the planets, either eight or nine planets in our solar system, and right now, all of those planets are circling the sun, right? They're circling the sun right now. And no one thinks about it. It just happens. Everybody in the room is sitting in a chair. And the reason you're sitting in a chair and able to sit in the chair is because there's this thing called gravity. It's on the screen right now. Anybody think about gravity this week? One person. Tracy did. There you go. There was one person in the first service who thought about gravity this week. Literally, less than 1% of the vineyard has thought about gravity this week. You know the main reason that you and I don't think about gravity? The main reason that you and I never think about gravity is because it works so well. So constant. So effective. So seamless. Holding the entire universe together. Holding our solar system in perfect balance is a sun. And because there are these planets of differing masses tethered by the mass of the sun going in orbit. You and I never think about this stuff. And the reason we don't think about it is because it's so seamless. It's so perfect. So perfect. Now imagine this. Imagine that two, maybe three times a year, gravity just stopped working. And when gravity stopped working two or three times a year, it was instantaneous. It it wasn't gradual. Imagine that gravity just stopped. Two, maybe three times a year on average. Imagine two or three times a year, everyone in the room just starts floating in the air. Everyone's, like, their heads are attached to the ceiling. And imagine that this goes on for long enough that that literally foundations and buildings begin to shake and certain small buildings that don't have really deep foundations begin to lift up. About twice a year, your potting shed or your, or your, the place where you park your lawnmower just begins to float into the air along with everyone on the planet. And then imagine as soon as, just as quickly as gravity stopped working, imagine that gravity began working and everyone hit the ground again. Imagine a world where three times a year maybe gravity just stopped. If you lived in that kind of world, how conscious would you be of gravity? How often would you think about gravity? You'd think about gravity every day. You'd wonder, like, we wouldn't just talk about the weather anymore. You'd meet people. You'd meet people. And you wouldn't say, wow, this is really crummy winter, huh? You'd say things like, I wonder if this is the day. And they would say, I don't know. It's been, it's been six months. We're due. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, did you get everything in your house screwed to the floor? Not yet, but I'm working on it. 
We did get the big appliances. We almost lost the baby last time when the refrigerator came back down. These are the sort of conversations you would have. We would suddenly become, we would become obsessed about something that no one thinks about. The reason that no one thinks about it is because it works so good. This is the main theme in the book of Colossians. It's that Jesus is working so good, it's possible to forget him. It's possible to forget him. See, when you live in a world where gravity operates so seamlessly, so perfectly, so non-glitchy, so constant, so... It's possible to forget it. And in a world where it's possible to forget the very thing that's holding it all together, you and I will read into that world narratives that explain it in a different way. When you lose consciousness of the things that's holding everything together, it's possible to read in another narrative to explain it. How many of you understand that a few hundred years ago, lots of people in the world thought that the world was flat? The world, in fact, was not flat, has never been flat. In fact, it was the church that was behind a lot of this thinking. I could go on about some other things the church thinks as well. (laughs) Things that were debated this week, even. I think it's hilarious in the church that we debate things that don't take anything away from Jesus. It's like Christians are so mad trying to defend something that takes nothing away from Jesus. It's like, come on, grow up. But it wasn't long ago that people thought that the world was flat. At about the same time, people also thought that the sun revolves around the earth, when in fact it's the earth that revolves around the sun. See, in a world where things work so perfectly, it's possible to project another narrative. It's possible to forget and then begin to project another narrative. In a world where Jesus is supreme and has in fact created everything and is in fact at this very moment holding everything together and works so perfectly at holding everything together, it's possible for you to forget about Jesus or not see Jesus or fail to recognize the degree to which he really is making everything okay. And in that world, it's possible for you to extend another narrative into that world, one like there is no God. You're free to think there is no God. And by the way, if you think there is no God, it's okay, Jesus will still be God. It's so seamless what he's doing. There are people in the world who think there is no God. Just like there were people who used to think that the world was flat. Just like there were people who used to think that the the sun revolves around the earth. Or maybe you wake up a little bit and you begin to think that the spiritual life is contained in what a person eats or doesn't eat. All of this will become more pertinent as we go along. Or maybe you think that Jesus is good, but he's just one of many equally effective choices in living a spiritual life. Maybe you begin to believe there is a Jesus. I've heard about him, kind of like I've heard about gravity. I know about Jesus to the extent maybe I know this equation. I could work the math. And you begin to operate out of a narrative that says... Yeah, you know, gravity's real, but what you need is gravity, and then you need some other things over here as well. You could operate your life from a narrative that says, what you need is you need Jesus, and then you need some other stuff as well. That's what happened to the church in Colossae. They began to believe that what you needed 
wasn't just Jesus, but maybe some Jesus and some other stuff tacked onto the end of it. And the reason they were tacking some other stuff onto the end of it is because they had forgotten that Jesus is, in fact, supreme. First, last, creator, recreator, holding it all together. In a world that's so seamless, it's actually possible to forget the very foundational things that make it all possible. Does this make sense? And so when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's writing to remind the church that Jesus is preeminent. He's the source. There is no other source. Everything flows from him. If you forget Jesus, you might as well go ahead and forget gravity. It'll still be there. It'll still be holding the world together. But you can go ahead and live your life fighting ultimate reality and looking stupid in the process. There are three things about the book of Colossians that I want you to keep in mind this morning. And the first thing, it'll help us in the coming weeks. The first thing I want you to keep in mind about Colossians is that it is a letter and it is not a book. Colossians is a letter. I think most of us in the room understand that letters are different than books, right? Letters are different than books. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter and he didn't write a textbook to the church in Colossae. Uh, this letter is full of wisdom, it's full of theology, it's full of important stuff, but it's packaged in letter form. It's interesting to me that when Paul is writing to the churches scattered across the Roman Empire, he wrote letters instead of doctrinal thesis. There's all kinds of doctrine in his letters, but he didn't write this big, long textbook for fixing everything. He didn't write a magnum opus, he didn't write a war and peace he didn't write seven habits for highly effective people. Instead, he typed an email. So when we encounter the book of Colossians, what you really need to understand is you're, you're really encountering an ancient email. Uh, anybody write an email this week? Anybody receive an email this week? Yeah, probably did. It's sort of like life, right? Some things never go out of style. It's just the form changes a little bit. And so Colossians isn't this magnum opus. Colossians is not this textbook. If you receive it as a textbook, you'll miss the mystery of Jesus in there somewhere. You need to receive it as a letter. You need to realize that it's basically an ancient email. And because it's an ancient email or a letter, essentially what we have is we have a document where the focus is much more narrow. Focus is narrow. It's not about everything. It's about a few things. It's not about every single thing in the world. It's about a few things. It's a short, specific letter to a group of people living out in the wilds of modern Turkey. And that means if we fail to hear the conversation on the other side, we probably fail to hear the voice of the Spirit to us. How many of you understand that letters are conversational in nature? When you write a letter, you're writing to another person. And usually you write a letter for a reason, right? And usually the reason has to be understood so that you can even understand the letter. So when we come to the book of Colossians or the letter of Colossians, what, you have to, what we have to realize here is that Paul's writing an email. There are some things that happen to prompt his writing of the email. And if we can't hear the conversation that's happening on the other side, we might not be able to discover the word of the Spirit to us as we read it. How many of you have ever read like some of the New Testament, especially some of Paul's letters, and, and thought, wow, that's really pretty. I have no idea what the heck he's talking about. Is that you? It's me. Yeah, the I don't know what the heck he's talking about is a direct result of us being unable to hear the other side of the conversation. 
Well, you might be asking, well, how do you hear the other side of the conversation? Well, it's actually very simple. Uh, It starts with asking one question to the Holy Spirit. You read the text. You know it's a letter. It's not a magnum opus. It's not about everything. It's about one or two things at the most because it's narrow in focus. It's an email. And then after you read the text, you ask the Spirit, Spirit, why would Paul write that? You might want to put that in your notes. This is how you do it. Spirit, why would he write that? That's the question that opens your understanding to the other side of the conversation. What kind of things would need to be going on for Paul to be able, for Paul to take his time in a short letter and begin to write about things like the preeminence of Jesus? Stands to reason if he's writing about the preeminence of Jesus in a relational letter that's narrow in focus, that something's going on in that church where they've lost the preeminence of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's how we approach the rest of the letter. So as you're reading in the coming weeks, I want you to carry this question in your heart. Spirit, why would Paul write that? Colossians is a letter. It's more narrow. We need to hear the other side of the conversation. We can hear it by asking a question. And the conversation that Paul is having in this letter has arisen because the church in Colossae has some issues. Can we put up verse 4? This is what Paul says. He says, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. The Colossian church was filled with the love of Jesus, but it had issues. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort in that. Paul's saying, you guys, you've got love and you've got faith in Jesus. That's a really cool thing. But if he's writing the letter, he's writing because there's some issues. So, a couple things. Number one, it's possible to have the love of Jesus and still have issues. I think we know this, but it sort of needs to be said. It's possible to have the love of Jesus in the church and still have issues. Okay? Uh, I take comfort in that. Um, We have issues at the vineyard. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you hang out, you will become aware of it. Chances are, if you hang out, I will end up offending you at some point. And you'll be in good company because it's been going on for 2,000 years. But there were issues. And Paul was writing, even into a body of believers that had the love of Jesus, he was writing to some issues. Now, one thing about issues. Paul was not writing about all of their issues. How many of you understand that even in a church this size, where we have two services that are about this big every single Sunday, how many of you understand that even in a church of this size here at the Vineyard, uh, we have more than one or two issues at the Vineyard? Uh, in fact, we've, got, we've probably got about 10 issues per person. So we've got at least 4,000 issues, probably, depending on the weeks, between 3,500 and 4,000 issues that gather every single Sunday together. I think I'm doing the math right. That's conservative. Some people believe we have more issues than that. So on any given Sunday, we, we've, got, we've got thousands of issues because human beings are coming here. And the church in Colossae was the same way, but Paul was writing to one or two of the main issues. 
And this is instructive for us. This is how letters work. In letters, it's conversational. The focus is narrow. It's relational. It's based upon hearing the other person. And Paul's not writing to solve all of their issues. He's writing to solve a couple of the issues, which is to say that chances are God is not working on all of your issues. He's only working on one or two at a time. We need to take that up right now. God's not working on all your issues. He's working on one or two. Uh, Now, I'm going to tell you a story that will comfort some of you and make some of you incredibly uncomfortable. A couple years ago, there was a woman who was here at the vineyard, and a sweet lady, really damaged person. Some of you all can probably um, relate. She's one of those people, and, and maybe you might be one of those people right now, or maybe you know someone who's like this, but she's one of those people... Uh, where every single aspect of her life was ruined. You ever met anyone like that? Like, you just get around them and you're like, I don't even know where to start with you. Literally. Here's essentially what this woman's life looked like. When she was in college, single mom in college, no husband, no dad around, a couple strikes against her already, She's walking out of class one day, and because it's icy, she falls down some concrete stairs, and she breaks her back in two places. She goes and she gets back surgery, and in the process of recovering from back surgery, she becomes addicted to pain pills. And then her doctors decided that he he would give her some more pain pills. And then the first doctor decided, I won't give you any more pain pills. And she went to another doctor who gave her some more pain pills. And then she went to another doctor who gave her some more pain pills. And then she started taking all the pain pills at once. And then she's like passed out on the couch with a young daughter who doesn't take care of herself and family who's becoming highly concerned. And everything is sort of just devolving. You ever ever been around some of that? It's really not fun. Anyway... So this young lady's taking pain pills, left and right, left and right, left and right. Finally, the doctors all cut her off, and they're like, well, we'll get you into this like treatment center that helps people with pain pills. And the treatment center uh, essentially gave her another pill to take place of her pain pills. And she got addicted to the pills that take the place of her pain pills. And then that didn't do enough, and so uh, she began to look for other ways to medicate. And when you're so bombed out of your mind that you can't function because... You're in pain, and now you're addicted to pain pills. How many of you understand you can't go to work? And if you can't go to work, you don't, you don't have any money. If you don't have any money, now you're a vulnerable person because you've got a young daughter, and now where are you going to live? So she has to shack up with dangerous men. Like the, it just keeps getting worse, right? I think everybody in the room kind of knows where this story goes. It's like hectic. So every single thing in this woman's life was a disaster. She's in my office one day. She's telling me the story, and... Um, She looks up to me from the couch and she says, Pastor Adam, what am I going to do? Which is a hysterical question. As if I know what we're going to do. Give me a break. Are you kidding me? You're addicted to pain pills. You have no job. You have no money. You have a young daughter. You have a boyfriend who's dangerous and maybe wants to kill me. At the time, this guy was really angry with me. I thought he was going to fit, abuse. I thought he was going to come and like harm me physically. 
I'm like, I don't know. I said, why don't we just ask Jesus what he wants to do with you? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I, I don't know. Why don't we just ask Jesus? She's like, well, go ahead. I'm like, no, you go ahead. She's like, now. I said, yes, now. Let's just pray and ask the Father what he wants to do. What does he want you to work on? So she prayed, and she's like, well, I think he says that, that he wants me to forgive my dad. I'm like, sounds great. Let's do it. She goes, how? I'm like, well, let's just forgive him. Just Let's just... Let's tell the Lord you forgive him. She goes, I don't know if I do. I said, well, let's just try. So we did one of those super awkward, really lame, repeat after me prayers. You know, Father, Father, I forgive my dad. I forgive my, you know, those, those. We did that and I said, how do you feel? She goes, I don't know. I said, why don't you ask Jesus? Is there anything else he wants you to do? And she says, yeah, I think Jesus told me he wants me to write a letter to my dad telling him I forgive him. I'm like, you should do it. She said, when? I said, how about now? She goes, I don't know the words. I'm like, well, ask Jesus for the words. I said, I'm going to finish some email. Here's a pen and a paper. You, go, you just write. You can stay in the office with me here. She starts writing. And then about halfway through her letter, she says to me, oh, yeah, this guilt thing. The narrative came over her. And the narrative is, like, you have to tell the pastor every bad thing that's ever you've ever done. She, she right about halfway through her, her letter, she says, Oh, yeah, Pastor Adam, this is really terrible. I said, what? She goes, yeah, you, I, I'm, I'm, still, I sm- I'm still smoking weed. <laughs> and I looked at her, I said, I tell you what, we're just going to work on forgiveness. You keep smoking weed for a while. <laughs> it's hectic, right? You can't, you can't, like, you can't fix all your issues at once. You just got to go one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. One of the reasons I can say that to her is I know that if she stays with Jesus, he'll eventually get to the marijuana. Same thing at the church in Colossae. They had all kinds of problems, but Paul's just speaking to one or two. And we need to, we need to ask ourselves, Paul, why are you writing that? Why are you writing that? Because we need to hear the other side of the conversation because he's addressing some really big stuff. He's got his target on something much bigger than the joint that's hidden underneath your bed. And by the way, you should get rid of the joint that's hidden underneath your bed. But sometimes there's something that comes before that. And God's not trying to fix all your stuff at once. Some of us think that our issues are so big that we need a double major. That we need to read all of the books before we can begin living confidently in Jesus. And the letter of Colossians works totally against that altogether. God's working on one or two things. And it's a person who's living with Jesus in the process of all their pain and messed up junk. That, that's the person that Jesus is able to steer. How many of you understand you, you can only steer a car that's moving? It's the only one that you can guide or direct. Some of, you, some of us are like frozen right now. You think, well, I've got so many issues. I need to like, I need to read all the Jesus books and totally understand like uh, all the atonement theory and eschatology and how the world's going to end and before I can like really live for Jesus. And it's really not true. Probably none of that stuff's going to help you. <laughs> 
you live life with Jesus, the Spirit begins to work on one or two things, just like he's doing with this group of believers. Uh, The second thing I want you to see about the book of Colossians is that it's human. It's full of human relationships. The book of Colossians is not a textbook. It is a human letter. It is... It's got beating blood in it. It's sweaty. It's human. It is, it is relational. You can't even read the first chapter of Colossians without running into really important human relationships. If we can put up Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Look at this. Paul, there's a human. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Right at the very beginning, Paul is writing to this group of believers out in the middle of Turkey. And right at the very beginning, he begins to bring in his young protege, Timothy. These kinds of relationships are all over this letter. And it isn't just Timothy, but there's also a guy named Epaphras. Let's look at the next scripture here. First chapter again, verse 6. Then we're just kind of jumping into something that Paul is writing. So it makes a little less sense, but it doesn't matter because the point I want to make is something different. This is what he says. He says, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Paul did not plant the church in Colossae. Chances are he never even went. You know who did plant it? Epaphras. He's the church planter. He's the church planter. We're not merely looking at a sacred document, and it isn't just sacred because it contains the words of God. Everything about it is sacred, including the human relationships that led up to the part of collecting a church and even having a church to write to. It's all sacred. It's all sacred. There's a story behind this story. There's a story behind the church in Colossae, one that we may never know, but we know who it's connected to, and it's connected to Epaphras. He's the guy who learned it from Paul and then took off. And then when Paul's writing to this church, he's like, hey, this isn't just me, but this is my, it's my main guy, Timothy. This is not just my thoughts, it's what we think. It's so much cooler. Like The life in the Spirit is never the alone life. The spiritual life is always the connected to other human beings' life. Always the connected to other human beings' life. Um, And this is to say nothing of several other people who are mentioned in the book of Colossians. If you turn to chapter 4 at the very end, Paul begins to just rattle names off left and right, names that may or may not mean anything to you. He names off Onesimus. Does anybody in the room know who Onesimus is? Maybe two. It's okay. Onesimus is the runaway slave from Philemon, another letter that Paul wrote. So when you're reading Colossians, you have to understand that Philemon is a letter that goes right along with it. And there's all these stories. Onesimus ran away from his master and met Jesus along the way. And Paul writes a letter back to his owner, to Philemon. There's all these stories. It's, there's something human about this. Not only that, but at the very end of Colossians, Paul mentions a man named Demas. And then he says, Luke the physician. Anybody in the room know who Luke the physician is? Well, it's the guy who wrote the book of Acts. It's the good doctor himself. Not only that, but the book of Luke. See, the Spirit is always working with human relationships. Every person in here is being woven into the gospel story. And whether you know it or not, there's a thread that is running from 2,000 years ago right up to this point. You and I are connected 
by relationships and by the Spirit to this same book, to this same idea, to these same people, to this same thing that the Spirit is always doing. You can't live the Spirit life apart from other people. Now, here's the bad news and the good news all wrapped up into one. Other people will ruin your life (laughs) and make it hard. Other people can ruin your life and make it really hard. Um, Like this week, I had kind of a crappy week this week. And the reason I had a crappy week this week is because of human beings. I also had an amazing week this week. And I had an amazing week this week because of human beings. And it doesn't matter what human beings do, either good or bad. It doesn't matter what human beings are in terms of together or broken it doesn't matter all the crazy ways in which our relationships either engender love and affection or bitterness and hurt especially here in the church we've got to learn that it really is about us together and that life in the spirit is about us being together you can't run away from it trying to run away from the bad stuff also takes you away from the good stuff and in the process of all of that jesus is the one holding it together Like, there's some stuff that's happened in the last year at the Vineyard. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I have no idea what to do about it. Like, literally, there are relational things that happen in this church. I have no idea. People come to me like, what are you going to do about that? I don't know. It's complicated. People are very complicated. Um, Occasionally, uh, as a pastor, even, you know, just as someone who's a part of the body, you, you, you guys understand this. Occasionally there are situations that are happening inside the church that are so complicated, doesn't matter what anyone says, you just want to go nuts. You want to claw your eyes out. You're like, well, I could do this, but then it's that. And then, good news, this frustration, that's the spiritual life. This is Jesus holding it all together. He's the gravity that's gluing this thing together. It really isn't up to you. And it isn't up to me. The main thing for us is don't run away. Don't run away. You can't run away from it. You'll miss the good stuff. You'll miss the good stuff. And it's part of the message. The subtext in Colossians is all of these human relationships. These, these bonds that are held together. It's Paul and Timothy. and It's Paul and Epaphras. And it's Paul and Onesimus and Demas and Luke the physician. And he doesn't mention them here in this book, but it's John Mark. And at one point, Paul gets so angry with John Mark that he he tells him, you run away, don't come back. You can read it in the book of Acts. John Mark gets a little upset because it's getting a little intense to be a believer in Jesus. And Paul basically tells him, you run away, don't come back. Only a few years later to have Paul say, you know what? Send me John Mark, he's useful to me. How did that happen? Well, it happened because Paul would not let go of Jesus is the gravity that is holding it all together. How many of you have ever been upset with somebody at church and maybe even had a couple of years where you fell out only to eventually fall back in? Well, how did that work? Well, it worked because uh, you're in Jesus's orbit and he's eventually going to bring everything together. And you can, you can set your heart toward uh, dissociation and d- dissolution and dissolving all you want, but eventually you're going to come right back to the people who hurt you. Mark it down. Colossians is not a textbook. It's a human letter. It's sweating. It's got blood. You cut it, it bleeds. There's people. There's human relationships there, and you can't get away from it. Third thing I want you to see in the, the, the letter of Colossians is that, um, that Colossians is one of Paul's prison letters. 
Meaning that this stuff, every single word was written while Paul was in prison. You can't let go of that. You let go of that and some of it doesn't hit as hard as it would. I want to read a couple of scriptures to you. If we can put the first one up. Before you read, I want you to keep this in your brain. Dude is in prison. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. How many of you always thank God for anything if you were in prison? How many of you would pray for other people that you've never met if you were in prison? How many of you would spend every night and every morning and every day praying that God would get you out of prison if you were in prison? Right? It seems more logical, right? But what is Paul doing? He says, we always thank God. Thankfulness, where does that fit into imprisonment? Apparently in the kingdom, imprisonment does not stop thankfulness. Always thanking God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And the first chapter of Colossians, Paul is mentioning that they praise for them over and over And by the way, these are people he's never met. Epaphras is the guy who planted the church. And Paul's saying, I always thank God for you because you love each other and I pray for you all the time while I'm in prison. It's like my favorite thing to do. Second scripture. Again, written by a prisoner. I want you to imagine you're in prison. Would you write something like this? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, how many of you would have a compassionate heart if you're in prison? Hey, you should have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Does this sound like a prison letter to you guys? Prison letters are, dude, when I get out, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> right? But what I see here is I see that the gospel is real, that it really does change hearts and it changes people through and through. And the evidence of a changed life, a a gospel-soaked life, is what happens in hard times. There's something about pain and pressure which brings out the best in the saints. I want to read you another prison letter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in prison, a few weeks before he was hung by the Nazis. And by the way, Dietrich was hung only two weeks before Allied forces came in and set him all free. This is a prison letter. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. I'm lonely, but you do not leave me. I'm feeble in heart, but with you there is help. I am restless, but with you there is peace. And in me there is bitterness, but with you there is patience. And I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. One of the things we see in Paul's letter to the Colossians is that it's hard times which brings out the best in the saints. It reveals what's really, really there. It's the crushed grape that releases the juice. See, a lot of us are avoiding the pain. 
Like, it's human. I get it. I do it too. But as Christians, one of the things that we don't want to do is we don't want to become so insulated from the pain that the gospel can't do its deepest work. It's mostly pop psychology that keeps us looking to avoid the pain. It's the gospel that is grabbing hold of the pain, not in some crazy, you know, go do something dumb, become a martyr for Jesus kind of a thing. But it is the gospel that is the laid down life. Jesus has a particular way of doing things. Jesus would rather die for people than judge them. That's really different. That's who Jesus is. And it's the hard times that reveal what's really, really there. It's the hard times that reveal the extent to which the gospel has penetrated our outer layer. It's the crushed grape which renders the juice. It's the limited life which holds dearly to Jesus. It's the prisoner. It's the scorned. It's the heavy-hearted. It's the suffering who meet Jesus in a new way. It's like the two guys who were on the road out of Jerusalem when Jesus had been crucified and buried. And they're going home because they think, well, that guy wasn't the Messiah. And they're heavy-hearted, right? You guys remember that? On the road to Emmaus. And who do they meet on the road to Emmaus? They meet Jesus. Only problem is they didn't know it was Jesus. They're so heavy-hearted, they can't see it's Jesus. But it's interesting to me that Jesus goes and finds the heavy-hearted. It's part of the text there in Luke 24. If you're heavy-hearted, Jesus comes to you, and you get to experience Jesus in a new way. Jesus comes up to these guys. He says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said, well, we feel stupid. And he says, what do you mean? Why would you feel stupid? And he says, well, well, we feel really dumb because because we went to Jerusalem. We thought this guy was like the Messiah. It's really, honestly, I, I, feel, I feel ridiculous even saying it out loud. Then Jesus says, well, why would you feel ridiculous? And the guy says, well, he got crucified. I don't, you know, he's dead. Like, it's over. We're going home. And Jesus says, well, hey, you didn't, you, you guys didn't know that the Messiah had to suffer. And the guy's like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, no, for real. Let me take, you guys remember the scriptures, right? And he goes, of course we love the scripture. He goes, well, you, you remember like Isaiah 53, right? Like, like that God was going to lay the punishment on the Messiah. And the guy said, you know, I've never really read it that way. And he goes, well, you should read it that way. Let me tell you about it. And then they go and they have dinner and when they break bread, when they have communion, just like we had this morning, when they, when they commune together, they become aware that it's Jesus they're talking to. It's, it's, the, it's the crushed grape that renders the juice. It's the, it's the hard-pressed life that sees Jesus in a new way. It's the heavy-hearted who, who meet Jesus. It's the heavy-hearted who Jesus comes to and reveals himself in a new way. It's the prisoner who hangs on to the Lord. It's the limited who reaches for Jesus. It's the, it's the, the scorned, the ones who are token, talked against and the ones who are beat up that Jesus is so near. It's the promise of Jesus himself. He says, blessed are the persecutors, the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because persecution is a kingdom door. And the reason persecution is a kingdom door is because our king is a persecuted king. To know hardship is to live the gospel. Now, there's several different kinds of hardship. Paul's living a particular kind of hardship. Paul's in jail because he's being a faithful disciple to Jesus, right? 
here's the here's the good and terrible news this morning. If you want to live as a faithful disciple of Jesus, there's going to be hardship in your life. Uh, the kingdom life is not the easiest life. It's the it's it's a hard life, but it has the most grace. So it's good and great news. All it's good and terrible news all at the same time. So there's a couple of different kinds of hardship in life. There's the hardship that comes from wanting to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. And then there's the hardship that comes because you and I are idiots. Anybody ever experienced hardship because of idiot? Yeah. Like, like for instance, uh, maybe you, you decided to do something really dumb. Like uh, you just got the credit card out and you just started going, take two of those, bam, give it to me. And then what happens? You get the bill, and then after you get the bill, your dog gets appendicitis, and then you take her to the vet, and the vet bill's like $9 million, and then on your way home from picking up your dog who has appendicitis, your car blows up, and your kid needs braces. And this all happens in like two weeks. Some of you all know what I'm talking about. And none of those things individually would have been such a big deal if you hadn't gone and like swiped like crazy for the last eight and a half months. And now you got nothing. You got nothing. And you don't even you don't even have a plan. Like there is no plan. Like Dave Ramsey can't even help you. <laughs> so there's a lot of different kinds of hardship. There's the kind that comes from wanting to be a faithful servant of Jesus and a disciple and a follower. And then there's the kind of hardship that comes that it's just because you and I did something real dumb. And here's the good news this morning. Jesus is near to everyone who's having a hard time, even if you've been an idiot. Even, even if. Even if you've been an idiot. One of the ways that we find Jesus in a new way is our hardships. Here's what I found. If you've been an idiot and you're having a hard time and you reach out to the Lord, He'll come to you. You'll see, you'll see Jesus in a new way. And it will allow you to begin to trust Him in a new way, which allows you to become a faithful disciple, which will bring a new and different kind of hardship into your life, and He will be even more near to you. In me there is darkness, but with you there is light. Prison words. My guess is that there's probably some people in the room that are experiencing hardship. If you're experiencing hardship, the good news this morning is that there is a hidden reservoir. The Apostle Paul had a hidden reservoir. For everyone who experiences hard times, there is a hidden reservoir, and it runs from the veins of Jesus. A faithful life to Jesus is not the easiest life. It will oftentimes be the most difficult, but it will be the most grace-filled. Not easy, but grace-filled. And no matter what the hardship, and no matter what the trouble, and no matter what the temptation, there is always a grace which surpasses any of those available. There's always grace available that surpasses. Always. Anybody in the room uh, been tempted this week? You can just give me the little... Yeah, anybody go ahead and like give in? Good news, there's grace that's available that's bigger than the temptation or the giving in. Anybody experiencing temptation? Anybody giving in? 
Anybody experiencing the repercussions of giving in to temptation? There's good news. There's grace available, which is bigger. And there is something about hard times which brings that grace right to the surface. It was available to Paul. Before Paul wrote words like we've read off of the screen, Paul killed Christians and he thought he was doing God a favor when he did it. See, the gospel's real. It changes people. There was a time in Paul's life where he was the hard time on Christians. And God's grace so radically changed who he was that he became in his own body a suffering member of those hard times. And it was the sweetest stuff that came out in those moments. Yeah, so part of the word to us, Vineyard, from the letter of Colossians is that there's a hidden reservoir in hard times, even when you're in prison. You don't have to, you don't have to run away. Um, oftentimes, God wants to take us through something rather than around it. Sometimes there's a way around, and if there is, he'll take us. But oftentimes, he wants to take us through rather than around. Transformation usually happens through. How many of you understand that there's a difference between resurrected Jesus and dead in the grave Jesus? Right? Resurrected Jesus is full of glory. And the only way to get that kind of glory is through the tomb. God is inviting us not to be people who run away from every painful thing. Even if it's painful stuff in us that's our own stupidity. He's inviting us to come in and find him in a new way. He'll meet us in a new way. He'll meet us in a new way. There's grace available to not be everything that we've always been. There's grace available from the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you're on the ministry team, why don't you come up this morning? Oh, good. We've got great people on the ministry team this morning people who love other people and know how to pray for people. Hey, Harley, why don't you come up and help Travis? Come on. Everybody say hello to Harley. Uh, One of the things you guys don't know about Harley is he's one of the most important people at the vineyard. He is. He is. uh, probably, Probably before even the end of the year, Harley's probably going to change some of y'all's lives. You probably didn't even know that. He's a good one. Awesome. Hey, um, before we before we cut out of here this morning, is there anybody in the room who who just needs to who needs to give their life to Jesus in a new way? Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus ever, ever. Does anybody here need to just give their life to Jesus for the very first time? If that's you, why don't you stand up? Seems like there's just grace from the Lord here for for somebody who maybe is far from him. Anyone? Okay. Why don't everybody stand up then? Hey, can you guys do me a favor this week? Why don't you open up your Bibles this week and read the letter of Colossians 
every single day. I'm a really slow reader because I'm not a real smart person. I'm one of those people who, like, when I read, my mouth is often moving. I've got incredible comprehension. <laughs> It'll take you about 12 minutes to read the whole book. Read it every day this week. It's a letter. It's human. Written in prison. Hard times. There's stuff available for us. Why don't you put your hand on your heart? I want to pray for you. Jesus, thanks for this lovely room of people that you've brought together. Father, the only person in the world who could bring this group of people together is you. There's not a basketball game. There's not a concert. There's not an art exhibition anywhere that would bring this diverse group of people. Only Jesus could do this. And Father, we ask that the, the life of the Spirit would be so available to us. God, I ask that you would open every heart, every mind, and every eye to the fact that you are, in fact, the gravitational force that is holding the universe together. Father, I ask that you would make us so aware of the fact that you are holding this church together. And God, I would ask that you would make us so aware that there is grace available to not dissociate. God, that there is grace available for human relationships, that there is grace available also for hardship. God, for people who are experiencing hardship for a million reasons, uh, because they've been stupid or because they've tried to be a faithful disciple of Jesus or they just had a rotten mom and dad, whatever it is, God, I ask that the presence of Jesus, the suffering servant, would be right there with them. God, I ask that you would come alongside of us just like you did those two fellows on the road to Emmaus. Would you come and walk next to us, God? God, I also ask that you would give us confidence in the grace of God, that there is always a reservoir available that exceeds every trial, every hardship, every temptation, every single one. We draw from that. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything this morning, you come on up. If you're sick in your body or you need to respond to the word or life is just attacking you, come on up. We've got people here.